The following is a recording of the Thomas Paine Unitarian Universalist Fellowship. We are located in Collegeville, Pennsylvania. We are also located on the web at www.tpuuf.org. Please come visit us. Across the field, shouting at this lovely girl and commanding her to yield. And as she was letting go her grip, up Tom Payne did run. I'm sorry, sir, he said to me. I'm sorry for what she's done So that prelude was written and sung by Bob Dylan and why would Bob Dylan be writing a song about walking out one morning to breathe the air around Tom Paine and meeting a woman in chains and uh, offering her his hand and then being saved by Tom Paine running up and apologizing for what was going on? Well, this probably was prompted by um, and, ref and reflects an event that happened in 1963 when Dylan received the Tom Paine Award from the National Emergency Civil Liberties Committee. And he delivered an impromptu acceptance speech um, in which he started talking about people who had gone to Cuba in defiance of a travel ban and he claimed to have empathy for Lee Harvey Oswald. This was in 1963. That was not a good thing. He was, he was booed, they rushed him off the stage, and it was, it was kind of a disaster. So a little while later, he wrote a letter of apology in the form of a poem to the Emergency Civil Liberties Committee trying to explain and apologize for his acceptance speech. Um, and he offered to return the Tom Paine Award. They never asked for it back. But in this long poem explanation, he's talked about staring at the award and um, seeing in Paine's face uh, an almost sadness in his smile. Um, his trials show through his eyes. I know really not much about him, um, but I would like to sing for him and there's a gentleness to his way. So this song was probably Dylan singing to Tom Paine after he had maybe done a little research and found out who Tom Paine was and you know what this award that he had just gotten uh, and made a mess of was all about. And so we have this Tom, Bob Dylan song about Thomas Paine. So good morning from Thomas Paine Unitarian Universalist Fellowship in Collegeville, Pennsylvania. And for those of you who are on Zoom, thanks to the magic of, our, of the internet and our wonderful tech team, we're also as close as your home. I'm Preston Lutweiler, past president of the Board of Trustees, and I wanna personally welcome you this morning, wherever you are on your life journey, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, whomever you love, Whatever your gender identity or expression, we welcome you into our circle of compassion and caring. Now, a little bit of history about our fellowship. Um, it was incorporated in 1974 under the name Greater Norristown Unitarian Fellowship. And five years later, in 1979, changed the name to Thomas Paine Unitarian Universalist Fellowship at the urging of some of our members. Why Thomas Paine? Well, for one thing, he's featured on a poster in our lobby of 100 Unitarian Universalists who made a difference. But four years ago, 
the Unitarian um, Universalist Church of Akron, Ohio, updated and renamed the poster and removed 38 of the people who were on that list of 100. Fortunately, Tom Paine made a second list of UU adjacent people. So he's on the, 20, the list of 20, 20, 22 UU adjacents um, who, uh, point, uh, whose works and points of view gr greatly align with UU philosophy. And we're gonna talk about that today. The official delisting by the UU Church of Akron doesn't stop UUs like us claiming UU adjacent luminaries. And I'm happy that our congregation chose the name Thomas Paine Unitarian Universalist Fellowship out of respect and admiration for this man. I think of Thomas Paine as something of an 18th century cross between Elon Musk and Abby Hoffman. How, how many of you remember Abby Hoffman? Okay, a few. Um, so, you know, his pamphlet, Common Sense, was hugely popular, and, and it laid the foundation for the American experiment in democracy. And it was an inspiring piece of political propaganda worthy of Abby Hoffman. It also went into details to support the cause of the United States, a phrase that he coined and was later used and is still used today. Um, and he went into detail about the United States building a navy because that was the one thing that Britain had a lot more of than the United States. So we needed to build a navy. So he went into detail about how many ships, what kind of ships, how much timber would be required, what it would cost for the United States to build a navy in this pamphlet that he was distributing. Um, so that level of detail to me is worthy of someone like Elon Musk. And later in his life, he was an inventor who worked on developing a smokeless candle, and he also designed an iron bridge, which at that time, that was long before Eiffel, uh, designed the Eiffel Tower, he designed a iron bridge that would go across the Schuylkill River. It was never built, like a lot of Tom Paine's ideas, but it was a great idea. Um, the Soul Matters theme for February is the gifts of justice and equity, and Thomas Paine's writings were, among other things, a gift of justice and equity to the new world. They also covered five of our seven principles that you use adopted in 1985, more than 200 years after Thomas Paine's influential writings. Our first principle is the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Our second principle is justice, equity, and compassion in human relations. Our fourth principle is a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. Our fifth principle is the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process. And our sixth principle is the goal of a world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. Thomas Paine was all in on all five of those, of those principles. February is also Black History Month, and Paine ardently opposed slavery. Unlike some of our nation's great founding fathers, like Thomas and Jefferson, who owned slaves, um, Paine felt that freedom should apply to all men and women. So after this service, I hope you'll agree with me that as an adjacent UU, who wrote passionately and with great effect in support of at least five of our seven UU principles, Thomas Paine is a fitting figure to be honored by the name of our congregation. And now, as I light the chalice, Joanne Walker is gonna read some words from Reverend Scott Taylor. Building the justice we long for. May this flame cast its light toward better days, reminding us that the future is not simply a place we are going, but a place we are creating. The path of new possibilities will not be found, but made. The justice we long for does not sit at the end of that inevitable arc. It lies in the bending that is ours to do. A new world is waiting to be built, friends. May our time together light the way. 
now I will light the peace lamp, repeat with the words that are on the screen. May peace be with you. And with all the people of the world. Our gathering song today is going to be Enter, Rejoice, and Come In, lyrics and music by Louise Ruspini and performed by the First Unitarian Church of Baltimore. Please um, feel free to sing if you would like. If you're going to stand to sing, please move to the sides. Weaver is going to read a pretty long story. If if the kids would like to come up front. Oh yeah, where's my helpers? <laughs> I need helpers. Here we go. Now, boom. So you don't have to sit on the cold floor. Nobody likes that. Hey Ryan, catch the flying saucer. Okay. Now, today's book is about the person our fellowship is named after, Thomas Paine. Check out the title, Thomas Paine and the Dangerous Word. So what I want you to be looking for in this story is, what is the dangerous word, okay? Now the story's long, but I really like it for people your age and for people their age too, because it tells us a lot about him that I frankly never even knew before. And the people out there and on Zoom are going to see what's uh, in the book that I'm going to show you, but they're going to see it up on the screen. And I'm going to go fast because it's a lot of pages, okay? I know you can hang with me, right? Um, well, I think there's like, I don't know, 40, 30 or 40 pages, so, but they're fast. Nobody expected much out of young Thomas Paine. Born in England to a poor corset maker and his wife, Thomas wasn't expected to go to school, but when he was seven, his parents scraped together enough money to send him. School opened a new world to Thomas. He discovered the magic of words and how to shape his bouncing thoughts into poems, like the one he wrote at the age of eight upon the death of his pet crow. Here lies the body of John Crow, who once was high but now is low. Ye brother crows, take warning all, for as you rise, so must you fall. Words became a gateway to possibility. When his teacher told stories about the British Navy, 
Thomas imagined his own battles on the salty sea. When he read books about the glorious new land called America, Thomas dreamed of sailing there. But Thomas was not expected to sail to America or join the Navy or even see an ocean at all. He was expected to be a corset maker like his father and spend his life sewing women's underwear. At, yeah, that's what a corset maker does back in the old days. At the age of 12, he was pulled out of school to begin work in his father's shop. 12 years old, could you imagine? How old are, is, that? is anyone here 12 yet? Pretty soon. But can you imagine having to leave school at 12? Anyway, just like that, Thomas's door to the world slammed shut. Measuring, cutting, sewing, Thomas spent his teenage years hunched over his father's work table, threading whalebone into cloth for seven very long years. But school had awakened Thomas to life beyond corset making. The mind, once enlightened, cannot again become dark. One day at age 19, Thomas saw an advertisement in the newspaper. To cruise against the French, the terrible privateer, Captain William Death, all gentlemen, sailors, and able-bodied landmen are, in, are inclinable to try their fortune as well as serve their king and country as desired to repair on board this said ship. In other words, they wanted him to join a ship to go fight in a war. His government of Great Britain was at war with France. Suddenly, Thomas could envision a bold new future, a thrilling life at sea, just as he had dreamed. Persuaded by words on a page, Thomas ran away to join Captain Death aboard the ship Terrible. Worried that his son was making a deadly mistake, Thomas's father followed him and urged him to stay ashore. Thomas agreed for a while. Two months later, the King of Prussia set sail to cruise against the French. Hey, does anybody know about King of Prussia? Does that sound familiar? What is that? Yeah, it's where the mall is, right? I was just there the other day. Okay, this time Thomas was on board. It was one thing to imagine adventure, but another to face it. Six months later, Thomas strode down the plank having achieved his dream of going to sea. He, died, he decided to stay in London and pursue a safer form of adventure, learning. For two years, he lived off his savings and splurged on his mind, attending lectures on math and physics and astronomy and philosophy. But big thoughts did not pay the bills. Thomas needed to find work. For 10 years, Thomas struggled. He opened his own corset-making shop, but the business failed. He married a maid named Mary Lambert, but she died. He worked as a preacher and teacher, but earned little. He worked for the government as a taxpayer collector, but he was fired. Still. Yes, I know, you're kind of wondering why we named the fellowship after him yet. <laughs> I'm getting to that part. It's going to be really good, okay? We're not there yet. Still, the resilient Thomas could see the bright side. I seldom passed five minutes of my life in which I did not acquire some knowledge. He loved to learn. So Thomas wrote the government to humbly beg for a second chance at his job. His polite words worked. They appointed Thomas as the tax collector in the lively town of Lewis, 60 miles south of London. Thomas thrived in Lewis. He joined the town council. It might be Lewis, but I'm not sure how they pronounce it in England. Okay, he joined the town council and local committees. He met friends for bowling and ice skating parties. And he married the landlord's daughter, Elizabeth. His greatest joy, however, was the Headstrong Club. Every week, Thomas strode across town to join friends at White Hart Inn. What's headstrong mean? I know what that means because I live it, okay? <laughs> headstrong means you're stubborn. You get an idea in your head and you think you're right and other people aren't right. And then sometimes facts will tell you you're not right and then you have to change your mind. But he was the president of the Headstrong Club. Dining on oysters and ale, that's beer, they debated the issues of the day, speaking with passion and conviction, wit and reason. Thomas quickly gained the reputation as general of the Headstrong Club. Are you people out there understanding now more why we might have named our fellowship after Thomas Paine? Are we getting there? And every week, the winner of the evening's war of words would find a prize delivered on his doorstep, the Headstrong Book, his to keep until the next meeting. 
Most often, it went to Thomas. After years of trying, Thomas had discovered a talent. He had a way with words. When Thomas spoke, others listened. Because... Before long, wait a minute, what happened here? Because before long, Thomas was asked to use his talent to help others. His fellow tax collectors wanted Parliament, Britain's government, to improve their pay and working conditions. They asked Thomas to write the request. Thomas threw himself into writing and distributing a 21-page pamphlet to explain this injustice. Parliament ignored his proposal, but the government did take one action. They fired Thomas again. Yeah. Uh-oh. What happened to that page? Am I okay? Okay, here it is. Coming up. That spring, Thomas's life fell apart. His life fell apart. All his... Huh? Okay. All his failures were written in words, painfully clear. He received notice of his firing. Friday, April 8th. 1774, hundreds of years ago. Thomas Paine, officer of Lewis, having been once been before discharged, ordered that he again be discharged. He ran out of money and sold his possessions to pay his bills. And his marriage ended. Bankrupt, unemployed, homeless, and alone, Thomas's dreams and hard work had come to nothing. He would have to begin his world over again. Thomas returned to London. Just as he was looking for a new direction in life, a friend introduced him to someone who might be of help, the famous American Benjamin Franklin. Yeah, Franklin was in London to help resolve the growing problems between Britain and the 13 American colonies. How'd that work out? Do you remember? You're right. It didn't work out. Well, it worked out well for us, not for Britain. Still, he made time to meet the bankrupt former tax collector from Lewis. Thomas left his meeting with a new plan and a piece of paper tucked in his pocket, a letter of recommendation from Franklin. Thomas was going to America. It was a miserable journey. A deadly fever broke out among the ship's passengers. Dreadfully sick, Thomas held little hope of reaching America alive. After nine weeks, his ship finally arrived in Philadelphia. Thomas was barely conscious. When news spread that Thomas had a recommendation letter from Franklin, a local doctor hurried to carry him off the ship and arrange for his care. Franklin's words literally saved Thomas's life. When Thomas recovered, he set out to explore his new hometown of Philadelphia, ambling along the cobblestone streets. He noticed a happy something in the climate of America, a sense of freedom and possibility, what many people called liberty. The taverns and coffee houses, however, bristled with debate about whether Parliament's new laws trampled on those liberties. If there was one thing Thomas loved, it was a debate. Are we getting closer, folks? Kind of understanding now? Okay. He liked to debate. But outside the coffee house across from his home, Thomas could see people auctioned off like cattle. Slavery angered Thomas. Where was their liberty? Slavery was an injustice, an outrage against humanity, and a direct contradiction to the freedom so cherished in America. Enslaving our inoffensive neighbors and treating them like wild beasts, how shameful are all our attempts to excuse it. If there was one thing Thomas couldn't stand, it was injustice. Soon Thomas found an audience for his strong opinions. While browsing in a bookshop, Thomas struck up a conversation with the store's owner, who was launching a new magazine and needed an editor. Thomas was launching a new life and needed a job. Their partnership was a success. With Thomas writing and editing, the Pennsylvania Magazine quickly became the most popular in the colonies. (coughs) Not afraid to speak his mind, Thomas wrote against slavery. Selling husbands away from wives, children, from parents, is this doing to them as we would desire they should do to us. His essay sent a ripple across Philadelphia. Five weeks later, the Pennsylvania Abolition Society was formed, the first anti-slavery organization in America. Thomas was inspired. In America, his words made a difference. 
Just as Thomas was settling into his new life, the country was set on fire about our ears. A messenger galloped into Philadelphia with alarming news. Fighting had broken out between colonists and British soldiers in the Massachusetts towns of Lexington and Concord. Dozens of colonists were shot dead near their homes. Thomas was shocked. As bad as he believed the British government to be, he never imagined they would be so rash and wicked as to attack their own people. Everyone was on edge. The colonies were now at war with the mightiest empire in the world, their own government of Great Britain. It was time to stir, Thomas said. It was time for every man to stir. Outraged, Thomas picked up his patriotic weapon, his pen. He ranted against injustice of Britain's government and urged colonists to defend their liberties. His words fell on deaf ears. Despite the growing violence, the colonists remained stubbornly loyal to their king. The newspapers and taverns were full of talk about reconciliation like Renaissance, right, Mike? How to resolve their unhappy differences and restore the harmony between Britain and her colonies. But Thomas knew that privately, some people expressed a, little, a different desire, the desire for American independence, cutting all ties with Britain and creating a new nation of their own. Thomas agreed with the quiet minority. Independence was the only way America could keep her liberties in the face of angry, punishing Britain. If only the people weren't so afraid. Wait a minute. Do you see the word yet? Independence was a dangerous word. You got it, don't you? So dangerous, Thomas was not allowed to discuss it in the, Phil in the Pennsylvania Magazine. A friend suggested Thomas write a pamphlet on the subject. If anyone could write a persuasive argument for independence, he said it was Thomas. The force with which it struck my mind and the dangerous condition the country appeared to be in made it impossible for me, feeling as I did, to be silent. You know, those words were written over 200 years ago, but when I read them, getting ready for this book, I thought, how appropriate to me. I feel it today. And that's something that adults are thinking about that you don't have to think about right now. But I feel that we are, our country is in danger of losing its independence right now. It was the time for the idea of independence to come out of the dark. Thomas began to work on his pamphlet. Once again, he hunched over a table, but instead of sowing corsets, he sowed seeds of revolution. Everything he wrote was in direct opposition to popular opinion, but as his pen scratched across the page, his passion grew. Pamphlets were usually written in fancy words for the colonial elite. Thomas used language as plain as the alphabet. He wrote so common people could understand, using wit, rage, and reason. The former general of the Headstrong Club attacked each of the deeply held beliefs that tied the colonists to Britain. Over several months, he wrote, edited, thought, and refined. He showed his draft to friends who worried for Thomas's safety. Safety. They advised Thomas to avoid by every means the dangerous word independence. Headstrong. Headstrong, there you go. Thomas ignored the advice. He used the word 22 times. As Thomas finished his manuscript, he ended with a promise born from personal experience. We have it in our power to begin the world over again. The birthday of a new world is at hand. Thomas gave a 79-page manuscript to a Philadelphia printer who courageously agreed to print 1,000 copies. The pamphlet was called Common Sense, and on January 9, 1776, it went on sale. News of the fire, fiery pamphlet spread quickly. Members of Congress scurried to buy copies, and they couldn't believe their eyes. In clear and brash terms, the author attacked the concept of kings, mocked the idea of reconciliation, and urged colonists to cast off their British government and boldly forge a new American nation governed by the people. It was literary dynamite. Ideas whispered only in private conversation were now brazenly public, written in a style never seen before. It was shocking. It was explosive. In just 11 days, common sense sold out. The printer rushed to print more. John Adams and his cousin Samuel Adams sent common sense to their wives in Massachusetts. Thomas Jefferson received common sense as a present in Virginia. John Hancock, president of the Continental Congress, passed along common sense as a pamphlet, which makes much talk here. Like wildfire, common sense spread throughout the 13 colonies, greedily brought up and read by all ranks of people. 
Soldiers and shopkeepers, lawyers and farmers, all eager to, eager to read the sensational pamphlet on the frightful word independence. Even those who couldn't read crowded into taverns and coffee houses to hear Thomas's word read aloud. Common sense is working a powerful change, wrote George Washington. Thomas was amazed. The boy who once dreamed of sailing to America was now its most celebrated author. I have the pleasure of being respected and I feel a little of that satisfactory kind of pride that tells me I have some right up to it. Thomas wrote to his friend Franklin, after common sense, the dangerous word didn't seem so dangerous anymore. Inspired by Thomas's courage and passionate reasoning, the people began to speak out. The colonies must be independent. Thomas started the public discussion of American independence in the spring of 1776. The, the debate raged up and down the colonies. Brandishing his pen, Thomas continued to write in support of independence. Six months after common sense appeared, bells rang throughout Philadelphia, summoning citizens to the yard of the State House to hear Congress's latest words read. The United Colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states. All political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. Thirteen, together, 13 colonies declared independence. Inspired by Thomas's unexpected words, America had found her voice. And what was that really scary word? Independence. And we're going to work very hard to keep our independence in this country. Thanks for listening to this very long story. I hope you enjoyed it. And now, and now I think John will turn off our mic and we'll sing you out. So as you heard in that book, Common Sense was published in January of 1776. The initial printing sold out quickly, and over the next three months, multiple printers printed as many as 100,000 copies. It was also published in full in the Hartford Current. Based on a colonial population of two and a half million people, that makes common sense, per capita, the most popular publication ever in America. You could say that it went viral. <laughs> it also later became very popular in France, and some of you know there was a French Revolution um, that followed, and eventually worldwide. Paine freely gave away the right to uh, and permission to reprint the pamphlet and he never cop enforced a copyright and he never made any money on common sense. In common sense, Paine goes to great lengths to argue against monarchy. He invokes examples from the Old Testament when the Jews asked first Gideon and then later Saul to become their king and in both cases those men not only rejected the offer, but admonished the people for having abandoned their king, who, in the view of the Bible, was God. So they were being traitorous by asking this human to be, to be their king. Paine wrote, these are good words. There is something exceeding, exceedingly ridiculous in the composition of monarchy. And he proceeded to give compelling arguments against it, and particularly against hereditary monarchy, and specifically the British monarchy, even though it was constrained by the Magna Carta and uh, the House of Lords and the House of Commons, no laws could be passed that the king did not approve of. Paine certainly recognized the danger of the word independence, as discussed in the book, and he tried to allay the, colonial, the, the colonists' fears 
when he wrote, if there is any true cause of fear respecting independence, it is because a plan is, yet lay, is not yet laid down for what would follow. So Paine proceeded to lay down the plan. He laid out a framework for a democratic government that included a bicameral legislature that was very similar to what en ended up uh, making it into our constitution. And <clears throat> he proposed a continental conference to frame a continental charter, which became our constitution, or charter of the United Colonies. And he wrote, let a crown be placed thereon by which the world may know that so far as we approve of monarchy, that in America, the law is king. That's a pain quote that you've probably heard many times. If independence was inevitable, when then would be the right time to declare it? Tom Paine had to lay out when the right time would be. So he wrote, I've never met a man either in England or America who hath not confessed his opinion that a separation between the countries would take place one time or another. And there's no instance in which we have shown less judgment than endeavoring to describe what we call the ripeness or the fitness of the, of the continent for independence. All men allow the measure, but vary only in their opinion of time. Let us, in order to remove mistakes, take a general survey of things and endeavor, if possible, to find out the very time. But I need not go far. The inquiry ceases at once, for the time hath found us. The general concurrence, the glorious union of all things, proves the fact. So Tom was, Thomas Paine was writing right after Lexington and Concord, and he was saying, if you're looking for a sign, folks, here it is. In an appeal to the third edition of Common Sense, Paine wrote, I should conclude with remarks with the following timely and well-intended hints. We ought to reflect that there, is, there are three different ways by which an independency may hereafter be effected. That one of those three will one day or the other be the fate of America. And those three are by the legal voice of the people in Congress, by a military power, or by a mob. So should an independency be brought about by the first of these means, I have, we have every opportunity and every encouragement before us to form the noblest, purest constitution on the face of the earth. We have it in our power to begin the world over again. A situation similar to the present hath not happened since the days of Noah until now. The birthday of a new world is at hand, and a, and a race of men, perhaps as numerous as all Europe contains, are to receive the portion of freedom, uh, their portion of freedom, from the events of a few months. That was common sense. He thought the revolution was only going to take a few months. <laughs> and now we'll find out why it didn't. <laughs> hello, I've been Hello, I've been asked to talk about my favorite piece of Thomas Paine's writing, The Crisis which I think is actually a better piece of writing than common sense. I've been hearing this, and I've been hearing the crisis, the, uh, the words of it since I was two. You say, well, why would a two-year-old be hearing Thomas Paine? Well, I'll, I'll get to that. But <laughs> the thing about the, uh, the, after we declared independence, things went south very quickly for America. We were almost snuffed out in those six months, the following six months after independence. It was really our, our darkest time. Now Paine, the gifted polemicist that he was, wanted to put his life on the line too. He wasn't just going to sit back and write about it. He went to go to New York where the army was fighting. He volunteered. 
What he saw there was a mess. The American army was being destroyed systematically by the British army, outclassing the American army in every way. Uh, George Washington was at odds with Congress. He started out with about 20,000 men. By the time Payne got there, he was down to about 3,000. Uh, they made, Washington made a very bad mistake in trying to hold what is Fort Washington, which is a park in upstate or, or in upper Manhattan, and Fort Lee, which is now the town of Fort Lee, New Jersey. He thought by holding these forts, he could stop the British from going up the Hudson River. Well, the British ships went right past those forts anyway and then doubled back down and captured 3,000 Americans at Fort Washington and almost captured Payne and what was left of the American army at Fort Lee. It was they just escaped in the last second. Things were going very badly. As Payne followed the American army through New Jersey, people in New Jersey were like, the game's over, we give up. We swear allegiance to King George III. Payne wrote something as he saw, I have to give people a shot in the arm. Things are bad. And he wrote The American Crisis Part One. Now, throughout the war, he would write other editions, but it's the first one that's uh, that's so famous that I used to hear every year, which I'll get to. We could get that picture. Of, um. <clears throat> as he wrote this, as the army was retreating through New Jersey, what was left of the army? Washington was desperately writing, writing to General Charles Lee, you gotta come down and reinforce me. Charles Lee was caught by the British because he stopped at, and stopped at a prostitute's house, and the British cavalry captured him in Basking Ridge, New Jersey. I've been to that house. <laughs> it wasn't a prostitute house anymore, but <laughs> I've been to that house. It had a, histor had a histor historical marker on it. <laughs> the, the famous lines he wrote, I think, are more classic than common sense because common sense is more hey look uh this is why we should declare independence hey look where our population is going to go up it's kind of uh, stuck in a certain time period where something like the american crisis he starts out like this and think of how dark it was people think oh that we were it was the worst at valley forge valley forge was the following year and at that point, the French and the uh, Spanish were joining in on us. So we, we, we were actually doing fairly well, uh, especially comparing, comparing to this. But he wrote, these, and you've heard these words, these are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in the crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consideration with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheaply, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to put a proper price upon its goods. And it would be a struggle indeed, it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. Britain, with an army to enforce her tyranny, has declared that she has a right not only to tax but to bind us in all cases whatsoever. And if being bound in that manner is not slavery, there is no such thing as slavery upon earth. Even the expression is impious, for so unlimited a power can only belong to God. One of his other lines I think is interesting him as a UU adjacent now. <laughs> I'm not going to, I'll just leave that alone. Um, where he wrote, I have as little superstition in me as any man living. 
But my secret opinion has ever been and still is that God will not give up a people to military destruction or leave them unsupportedly to perish who had so earnestly and so repeatedly sought to avoid the calamities of war by every decent method which wisdom could invent. Neither have I much of, of the infidel in me as to suppose that he has relinquished the government of the world and given us up to the care of devils. And I do not, I cannot see on what grounds the king can look up to heaven for help against us. A common murderer or highwayman has a good as pretense as he. We had one shot. <laughs> General Howe, William Howe, the British commander, could have went into Philadelphia, captured the Continental Congress, and probably put an end to it. He was moving, but he was kind of slow and cautious. And he got as far as Trenton, New Jersey, and he said, winter's setting it. I can occupy Trenton, New Jersey, and put out little garrisons across New Jersey. New Jersey will come back to the king, and in the spring I can cross in the, easily cross into Philadelphia. Washington had retreated in, in, across the Delaware and took all the boats on his side of the Delaware, and people were panicked in Philadelphia. What do we do? Washington decided he needed to put some pep back in what was left of his army. He had this read to his soldiers. Called them out and had this read. He devised a plan. He would cross the Delaware River in three-pronged attack. He would lead the northern attack with northern uh, part with about 2,400 men. The Philadelphia militia would attack Trenton directly, and the Pennsylvania militia would attack in the south. It just so happens George Washington was the only one who crossed the Delaware that, e that evening. The other two groups, including my ancestor, Wilhelm Berkheimer didn't make it across because he was in the Philadelphia militia, so um, they, it was too icy, <laughs> you can imagine. Um, Washington wrote, Vic, his last words he wrote, the password was victory or death. This was a roll of the dice. If I lose this, the game's up. Thomas Paine's words, were inspiring him. It just so happens this was a brilliant military triumph. Only two American soldiers were wounded. There were a thousand Hessian casualties, most of them who were the British allies, most of them captured. All of a sudden, as Howe said, people will now become, become rebels again because it was such a shot in the arm. Now you say, why, why would you have heard this when you were two years old? Well, every Christmas, <laughs> they reenact this Washington Crossing at Delaware at what is now Washington's Crossing uh, State Park. It was called McConk's Ferry at the time, um, where you, and there's the field where Washington drawn up his men and had the crisis read. So I would come up, be dr drug up out of my toys for Christmas to go watch Washington in the cold to go watch these guys cross the Delaware. And I would hear every year, these are the times that try my souls. And I thought, oh, <laughs> try my soul. I'm freezing out here. But. <laughs> I want to play with my Legos, but I, I, but this um, this painting, and it's easy to be you know cynical about things and and so forth. But there's a lot going on in this action in this painting. This was painted by a German in 1850 who never got to America. Um, 
you can go to Washington's Crossing State Park. You could probably throw a rock across the river. He based this on the Rhine, <laughs> which is about a mile across, okay? Um, the, uh, the, I, I don't see like chunks of ice like that in the Delaware River. I've seen, he was, you know, basing that on this. But this painting, by the way, there's two presidents in this, in this painting. Did you know that? Anyone care to guess? Well, George Washington, of course. And by the way, George Washington was 44 years old at the time. He was not as old as, as that. Um, the guy holding the flag is James Monroe, who was 19 years old at the time. He was one of the two guys that was wounded. <laughs> Later became our fifth president. There's also symbolic things on there. Do you notice anyone, anything else different about the people in the boat? I feel like I'm doing a genus service here, but that's all right. Anything different about the people in the boat? There's a woman in the boat. That was to do the women that uh, served like Deborah Sampson in the, in the army, secretly. He also uh, painted one of the guys in the front is an African-American. In prints of this painting, that was because it couldn't be sold in the South in the 1850s. They painted over that because he's a Massachusetts, uh, they, they employed uh, um, African uh, sailors. There's also a, a Scottish guy in the front to the Scottish tan he's wearing. Uh, the guy, the, one of the three guys in the front, he's wearing a Scottish tan. That was supposed to be for immigrants in America in 1850. And there's also uh, <clears throat> there's also twelve people in the boat with George Washington. <laughs> there's a guy behind. If you count all the like symbolic Christ with the twelve apostles on the on the on the sea. So I always you know, look at this painting and say, oh, there's a lot of stories in this painting. There's a lot of things historically wrong, by the way. The boats were like, bolt, boats used to move coal. They weren't like little boats like this you fall over. But um, I think of these 2,400 guys and, and people and, and being inspired by Payne's words. And as much as we talk about people on those poster, it's ultimately people like this that have to pay the price of this, who were often poor, often no shoes, wrapped cloth around their feet, and so forth, that had to go in this freezing weather and march through the snow and fight. Sometimes forget them. Um, but I still think the crisis can be read today with some real, uh, and it applies to a lot of things. I mean, I'll close with, with one quick thing. Um, one of the things he writes about, and I feel this uh, myself, was he talks about a Tory, which is a guy who was loyal to the British, who says, look, we're gonna become independent someday. Why fight now? I, I just want peace. Look, you know, we'll eventually become independent. And Payne says, how selfish of a person is that? I would rather go, because the guy says, I want peace now, peace in my time. And he goes, Payne says, I would rather there be peace in my children's time. 
I would rather I suffer than they suffer. And I think there's a lot to that. Thank you. Okay, now we've come to the time in our service um, that we call Matters of the Heart. And um, I'm going to let, uh, we're going to have a, a musical interlude that was composed and performed by Isaac Strader while you collect your thoughts. And then John will lead everybody in participating in Matters of the Heart. So I will turn this back over to Preston to bring our time of sharing to a close. Well, we'll uh, play uh, Spirit of Life, um, which in this version is uh, sung by the First Parish Brewster Unitarian Universalist Congregation. The words will appear on the screen. And again, you're welcome to sing along. Now we will extinguish the chalice um, with words from Audette Fulbright Folson, uh, read by Joanne Walker. We are not done. Do not think we are finished. Oh no, we will never be finished. Just, never just done until the light of justice is lit behind every eye. We have come to take back the world the world that is the inheritance of better children, better lovers, better days. We extinguish this chalice, but not the light of independence, democracy, and justice that we will carry with us into the world.
Okay, and John, if it's all right with you, we'll do the last song, We'll Build a Land, which is the closing song. We'll do it as a pre-postlude, and then we'll play the postlude. So we'll do announcements now, and if people want to stay for the closing song and the postlude afterwards, they may, or they can go right out to the uh, lobby. Good morning, I'm Ann Rostoski. I'm doing today's announcements.